The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So we just finished up the, uh, the book of Mark. We took 16 weeks to go through the 16 chapters of Mark, and I hope uh, it was uh, encouraging for those of us taking a look at seeing how Jesus is a man who is worth following, that he's a God who is worth worshiping. He's a king who's worth serving. Uh, I hope we saw as we, as we took, looked at each week just an aspect of Jesus and his character and his personality. And the thing is, when we see Jesus for who he is, uh, you cannot help but to respond in worship. And so I hope that as we led up to Easter last week and we saw how he lived his life and then sacrificed his life and died a substitutionary death for you and me and then rose again victoriously that he is somebody who is, who is worth giving all my life to and giving all your life to. He's worth everything. But then sometimes I was thinking leading up to this week, uh, you know, what happens, what happens next? And so we just want to take a pause this week before we head into, we're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah starting next week. We're going to be in there for 13 weeks. That'll take us to the end of July. But just one week between Easter and between the time that we jump into Nehemiah, to think about for a second as we finish looking at Jesus, how he is a man worth following, that should lead us to the next question. It's sort of like, okay, now what? We just celebrated a week ago. It's like the Christian Super Bowl. It's Easter. He rose again. It's the big deal, right? I mean, everybody gets dressed up. I mean, I wore a blazer, for goodness sake. It was crazy. I wore a tie. Um, I don't know, it probably shocked some of you guys. But what happens next? Do we just kind of move on and life just goes on? Or, or how should that, how should the knowledge that Jesus Christ is this awesome man who's worth following, he's the, he's our God and he's our king and he's risen. He's our risen Lord who is at the right hand of the Father right now. How should that inform who we are and what we're doing? Does that have any day-to-day bearing upon my life and upon your life? Let's take a look at Acts chapter one. If you have it in your, in your, if you have your Bible or your app, you can, you can turn there, flip there, click there. Um, we're gonna look and see how the, the first disciples, the first apostles, the, the apostles, were how they responded after Jesus left. If you have your if you have your Bible open to Acts chapter one, we're gonna look at verse three, and we're gonna skim down through verse eleven. He, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Remember last week we talked about how there's room for doubt in the Christian faith and how you know, if you are a doubter, if you know doubters, like you join a long line in the Christian faith. There were doubters all the way back. We see this group of people that were doubting. Like they, were, they had walked with him and they knew each other and one of them, you know, a few of them saw him. They said, we saw him. They said, we don't believe you. And then somebody else said, we saw him. And then 11 of them said, we saw him. And Thomas said, I don't believe you until I stick my hand into the holes and to his side and all that deal. But he says that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. It was real. It's real. There were eyewitnesses that saw him appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's saying, Look, guys, something's going to happen. This is very important. I want you to hang out in Jerusalem. 
until this happens. So it's like, so even though Jesus has risen again and he's, like we're going to already see, he's going to go to the Father, like it's not over. And then they, uh, when they come together, they ask him like, you know, again, they're still not getting in. They're asking about when he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And he said, it's not appointed for you to know these days and seasons. And then verse 9, and when, they had, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Which, by the way, if, if a man has been, who, by the way, was raised from the dead already, and he's standing in your midst, and all of a sudden he floats up in a cloud, and he leaves. Like, it's understandable that you're standing there looking up and waiting, right? And then, but then it says these men, two men, stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, Right at the very moment, the very minute where Jesus leaves and goes, raises, ascends up into heaven, and they're standing there looking, like seeing him leave, and they're standing there looking, 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 two angels come as messengers, and they say, hey, why are you standing around and staring up into heaven? Didn't he say to do something? Didn't he say to go to Jerusalem? Because see, what Jesus was doing whenever he came and he lived a perfect life and he died a substitutionary death for your sin and my sin and then was buried and rose again on the third day, he wasn't just like putting on a show. He wasn't just doing it so that you could pray a prayer or check a mark on a card and like say, hey, I, I've got some fire insurance. I'm not going to hell now. I'm going to heaven. I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. Like now I can get on with my life. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I'm going to move on. What Jesus was doing was something bigger and greater than that. Jesus was creating a new community, a new group of people. See, it's part of the plan that he's been working from the very beginning of creation. Whenever he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he was creating a people for his own possession. When they fell right on the very beginning and they fall, they fall, he comes down, he meets them. They're like, oh no, we messed up. And he says, right in the very, right, right in the very moment of their greatest, their greatest mess up of the fall, he says, I I'm going to redeem a people for myself. And so we read through the whole story of the Bible. I don't know how much of this you've read, but the whole story of the Bible from the beginning to the end is a story of how Jesus is redeeming for himself a people, a community for his own possession. Jesus is creating a people around himself. And let's look at, the, again, at the section that Allison just read. I'm not going to be able to read it as beautifully as she did, but look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse, uh, she, she started in verse 4. We're going to start in verse 9. Well, actually, we're going to start in verse um, 7. Well, actually, we'll start in verse 4. <laughs> I'm freestyling it this morning. As you come to him, as that's us, as we come to him, Jesus Christ, a living stone, that's him, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we see that in the story of the crucifixion, right? How Jesus was the, the perfect son of God. He lived this life, but then his own people rejected him, and they decided that like, he deserved death, and they crucified him. Even though God was in their midst, they rejected him. He was a, a, a stone that was precious in the sight of God, but he was rejected but you yourselves, like living stones, 
are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's saying that he has saved us to come to him as as these stones that ourselves are kind of rejected, kind of jagged, kind of outside, and he takes us one by one. And does he he take us and he put us in like a, a box so he can look at us individually? He says, no, he's taking us as living stones and he's building us together into a house, into a dwelling place for his presence, for his glory. And to the picture is like a temple. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's saying like, we're gonna be the temple, that, the dwelling place for God that, re, that is replacing the old temple that was in Jerusalem. It was just one building where his presence dwelt in the middle. But remember we said like the story of Jesus coming and his death and his resurrection is that we are united to him and we're not alone anymore. But we're coming to him as these stones and he's taking us as he himself was rejected and we were rejected and he's building us together and to be this house, this new temple that his presence dwells in. The picture that he's painting is that we are called to be a people together as his people who his presence dwells in us and among us and people around us who, are, who look in from the outside, they see a different kind of life, a different kind of something in our midst because he is here in our presence and in our midst. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, that's Jesus, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We see that, right? Like to some of us, Jesus, like, we, he is precious to us, but the people around us, they don't see him the same way, right? And maybe you, in your own story, I don't know what your story is, but maybe one, like, through, throughout your life, maybe Jesus was, you know, a nice story. Maybe you always kind of believed in him, but he just didn't really have, your heart didn't have appeal. It was kind of boring. Maybe you grew up in church, and that's what's what you did. So you came and listened, you did the deal, and you left. Or maybe you never were in church, and you just heard about Jesus, and he's like, that's kind of a silly myth, or that's child's play, or that's cute if you need him, or that's just a stupid story. But whatever you believed about him, is going to say, ah, oh, whatever nothing but one day you heard it and it also became precious to you. A, st- a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to some people but to some people the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You guys remember the cornerstone? We've talked about it a few times here on Sunday mornings is that the cornerstone was that they didn't have like a uh, you know, fancy architecture and surveying like we have now. And so what they would do is they, when they were building a building, they wanted it to be square, they would, t- they would cut one really large and really straight stone, like a square, and they would set it down. And then that would be the cornerstone. And they would build the lines off either side of the cornerstone to make sure that the building was square. Is how they measured, how they guided the rest of the building from that chief cornerstone. And that's what Jesus is to us. He's the one that decides what is square. But you, so some people stumble, but now he's talking about us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy 
nation, a people for his own possession. He uses four descriptions to talk about what we are there. He says, but you are a chosen race. Isn't that kind of an interesting phrase? A chosen race? A race. Because the, the word there in the Greek is the word ethnos. is what we get, what, ethnicity from, right? And so he's saying whenever you come to Jesus Christ and you put your faith and trust in him and you are born again, his spirit comes and lives and dwells inside you. Whenever that happens, something happens that totally changes your life. Jesus isn't something that comes and like you add on to your life. He is the center of it. He pushes everything out because he is the Lord and he will be the Lord. He's gonna be the cornerstone and you will have no other cornerstone in your life. You're not gonna determine your identity and value by your athleticism, by your physical appearance, by your possessions, by your intelligence, by where you, where you live or what you dry or who you know or who you don't know. Your identity isn't gonna be based upon what disease you have or don't have or who you married or who you haven't married. Your identity is solely gonna be based upon who Jesus is and what he has done for you and the fact that he chose you and he has taken you as a living stone and he is building you together onto something that he has been building from the very beginning of creation for his glory to showcase his magnificence and his glory. That's gonna be your determining factor of your identity and your value. No longer anything else. He, he pushes everything else out. Have you guys, um, you ever been to, to um, Chipotle or to Moe's? Uh, and, and like, you get like, it's maybe like a day that you're really hungry and, and you're telling them like you're, you're building your burrito. I don't know what your jam is at, at Chipotle. Uh, maybe you like Chipotle, maybe you don't. Like, uh, Jamin is a big fan of Chipotle. I went to Chipotle with Jamin a couple weeks ago and they, he's checking out and they said, we'll see you tomorrow. I was like, wow, you weren't lying about you coming here a lot. But <laughs> have you ever, like, the more and more stuff you put in there, and then you, like, you're like, oh, that looks good, that looks good, and then you see them trying to, like, roll it at the very end. They're trying to make it fit in that giant burrito shell because you kept putting more and more on it. Jesus Christ isn't gonna be somebody that just fits inside that burrito, like another topping, like I have my job, I have my marriage, I'm a father, I am wanna be a father, I am do this, I have, I have this kind of hobby over here and I'm adding Jesus together like I'm building some burrito. God says, no, I'm gonna be the only thing and everything else is gonna flow from me. You're not gonna fit me in there and try to make it fit. I push everything out because I am the chief cornerstone. And whenever that happens, whenever that happens, not just in your head, but when that happens in your heart and you taste it and you've seen how good and how awesome and amazing and magnificent he is, then that totally changes your ethnicity and your race. You might still be as white as Will. And there's a lot of white in here. You might be, you know, whatever, whatever we call Jamin, yeah, whatever you call it, you might be that still, but that is no longer the determining factor of who you are. Your ethnicity is no longer based primarily in the fact that you're Southern or white, or you're a Yankee, or you're God help you from Canada, or, 
or you're, or you're rich or you're poor, if you live on the west of the waterway or the east of the waterway, whether you came here or you've been here, whether you can grow awesome facial hair, your ethnicity is no longer based upon any of that. Your ethnicity is based primarily on the fact that you are a son or a daughter of the king. You know what? If you're a prince or you're a princess, that's the number one determining factor in who you are. It doesn't matter anything else. You could be ugly. You could be beautiful, but you're still a prince or princess, right? Just ask Prince Charles. He got Princess Di. How how did he do that? How did he land her? Because he's a prince. The number one determining factor in who you are and your ethnicity and your value, your race, is no longer your bank account or your skin color or where you're from. It's the fact that you are a son or daughter of the king. There was this guy named Suetonius, and he was one of the early pagan um, writers. And he actually said about the early Christians that they were another genus. Anybody know like what that means? It, it, it means like they're almost a different species of people. They think different, they look different, they sound different. Why? Because they are different. Because they're, no, they're not basing their, their value and identity and who they are and what they're about and how they're going to determine their life by what their own whim or by where they come from or what family they're from or just because my career says I do this or society says I do this. Now they said, no, it's being determined by the chief cornerstone. He's setting the lines. Nobody else. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. And the idea of this, of being a royal priesthood, is, is a picture of a, a set of priests who are in the service to the king. And so what that means is that you, as a chosen child of God, have access to the Father that the average person does not have. Why? Because you've been forgiven, you've been cleansed, You've been born again and you've been adopted into his family. You're a totally different species, a totally different genus, a totally different race, a totally different ethnicity now. And you have an access to God that the average person does not have. You have a close personal relationship with him. But it's not, notice he doesn't say that you are, that you're just like, you're a priest, but you're a royal priesthood. And the idea is that we're all that together. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are set apart. That's the idea of holy. It's people who are set apart to God. You are a holy nation. You are, he has taken you and he has called you out of what you were in and brought you into his kingdom and he's creating a new nation. And then involved in being a nation is the idea that we have, you know, there's, there's things that you have to do in life. You get education, you get a job, you get a career, you meet somebody, you settle down, you have kids, you buy a home or you rent a home, you drive a car, you do all the stuff that's involved in life, that involved in normal everyday civic life, but it says that there's gonna be a, you're still gonna do that, but it's gonna look different because you're holy, you are set apart. So the way that you and I do business, the way you and I are neighbors, the way you and I uh, use our language, the way you and I communicate with each other is totally different because 
We are a holy nation of people. I don't belong to America more than I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm still an American, but before I'm an American, I'm a child, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So that supersedes everything else. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Think about that. A people for his own possession. He's called us to himself that we would belong to him. Think of what comes with being what well, it has a couple of aspects. It has one aspect of that, that if, you're, if you are somebody else's possession, you belong to him. But if you belong to the king of the world, you have a privileged position as well. So you have a position of submission, but you also have a position of privilege. And then here is the kicker word. What do you notice after that comma? After a people for his own possession. The word that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's saying the purpose, the earthly purpose that he has called us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those, those, he's using all these metaphors, these, these living stones that are being brought together to build a spiritual house for God to dwell in. The purpose is that we would proclaim or showcase or, 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 or preach, or declare, show out, outside the excellencies of him who called us. We've been created to, to showcase the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ inside in the way that we, in the way that we live, in the way that we operate, in the way that we talk, and the fact that we are totally different, almost species of people. Our ethnicity is no longer determined by our standing, our, our, political, our political affiliation, our, where we live is determined by the fact that I'm a son or a daughter of the king. That guy Suetonius I told you about where he said that the Christians were a totally different genus of people. He said that, he said that they were different because of, different reasons, of several reasons, uh, nine reasons that the early Christians didn't, how they were different from the people around them. First of all, the Christians didn't go to the bloodthirsty sports. You know, the, the, so the, you, know, you see the great giant amphitheater, some of the, which still, the ruins still exist. So, so the, the big sport in, at the time was that they would, uh, they would send somebody out with the wild animals and they have to fight them and try to survive. And they end up, what do you, you know, if you're in the ring with a, with a hungry lion, the lion wins a good bit of the time. And so you people would, would see them fight and actually see them get mauled by these wild animals. It was the national sport. It was the pastime, like baseball to us, or unfortunately, or more like football, thankfully, or worse. They didn't go to those bloodthirsty forts, sports. sports. And because they didn't do that, they were considered antisocial. Number two, they didn't serve in the military to support Caesar's wars of conquest. Caesar was just, they, they weren't, he wasn't fighting these just wars or the, because these people were coming and trying to destroy us. He was just trying to take over other countries and the Christians didn't sign up for that. So that was considered weird. That was considered different. 
So in one way, they, they didn't participate in the bloodthirsty sports or, or watch them or reserve them or give them their money. Neither did they uh, sign up for Caesar's armies for, to, for conquest, but also they were against abortion and infanticide because it was a very popular deal. Like if you had a baby that you didn't want, particularly a girl, you'd just throw the baby out. But the Christians didn't participate in that, and only did they not participate in that, if they found a baby that had been thrown out, they would then adopt that child and rear that child. So you see how, like, see how, how we, we don't quite jive with anybody? So, like, sometimes in America, we tend to think, like, Christians are white, southern uh, Republicans, Right, that are clean-cut white Southern Republicans who have a certain sort of political view, a certain sort of social view, a certain sort of outlook. But you see how, like, so the fact that they were against abortion and infanticide put them in like the social, like, the Republican circle that we would consider. But the fact that they weren't, they were against bloodthirsty sports and they wouldn't just serve in just wars of conquest. You see how it's hard to pigeonhole a Christian and where they stand. Number four, they empowered women. They viewed them differently. They gave them leadership positions and authority. It was something that we didn't even talk about really the past few weeks is that it, one, of the, one, of the, one of the kind of proofs that the resurrection story is true is that if you were writing a fable about a man who came to life and you wanted to have some eyewitnesses that saw him, you would not have the first people that saw him to be women because women's testimony were not, they couldn't be used in court at the time. So you would never use that. Jesus used Jesus had prominent women in his ministry. He, he mentions them, he talks to them, he speaks to them, he addresses them. They're the first ones that he sees. And then in the early church, like they were a big part of life. They were, they were viewed differently than the society around them. Verse six, uh, number six, so they, uh, Christians were against, um, no, sorry, number five, Christians were against sex outside of marriage. That was actually made them very weird in the, in the society that they were in. They stood up and they said, God has told us not to do that. And they didn't participate in that. And they didn't under, people around them didn't understand that. Number six, they didn't participate. Uh, they were against and didn't participate in same-sex practice, which is ve- put them very weird, very out of the ordinary in their society. Number seven, they gave to the poor way beyond what the Romans and the Greeks did. They sacrificed their money and their time and their energy in fact, there's stories, not just of the giving to the poor, but there's stories of, um, and I've told you guys before, of uh, plagues breaking out in cities. And like, like this, is, this, is, this is like not just Christians who record this, but outside observers who observed that the plague was breaking out. And like if you were in a home and one of your family members got sick, you would just leave or you would cast that member out because you're just like, if we stay here or if we keep this person in here, we're all gonna die. And so we just have to just kind of like survive. And so you throw that person out or you guys leave the house altogether and Christians would go through and they would find the people out on the streets who have been kicked out of their own family's homes or go into those homes where the people have been left to die by their families and they would take them and they would nurse them. Knowing that there was a good chance that they were gonna get the plague themselves. And they would sacrifice not only their time and energy and money, but they'd sacrificed even their lives for the poor and the sick. Number eight, they mixed the races and classes together in their gatherings in ways that were considered scandalous. You wouldn't have the rich and the poor 
You wouldn't have our equivalent of rich and poor and black and white all together in one place, but they would bring them all together and they would worship together. Number nine, they considered Christ the only way, and this is the biggie, they considered Christ the only way to, sal- to salvation. And the rest of society was polytheistic. They worshiped all kinds of gods and kind of whatever God worked for you works for you. Whatever God works for you works for you. Whatever God works for me works for me. I'm not going to speak against we'll all be happy and we'll kind of get along together. Christians said, no, there's only one God. Does that sound familiar? That's kind of the society that we're in. We wouldn't consider it maybe a polytheistic society, but actually actually is a polytheistic society. Hey, your God is your God for you. Your God is your God for you. But Christians stood up in the middle of that and they said, no, there's only one God, Jesus Christ, and we will serve him and serve him alone. And so that's why, as we go down this list, like Christians couldn't be put in any one box because it seemed some of their beliefs and some of their practices seem liberal in society, and some of their beliefs and practices seem conservative in society, but it's not based upon the fact that I'm a white Southern Republican or I'm a whatever else. It's based on my, my beliefs, not just religious beliefs, but but. Across the board, about what I think about marriage and family and kids and society and work and everything, even political issues, is determined by the fact that I am a follower of Jesus Christ and he is the cornerstone and nothing else. That makes us aliens, which look down in verse, um, we'll keep on going here in verse uh, 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That word sojourner and the word exile there is a, is a really cool word. So the idea of a sojourner is somebody who is living in one country but is a citizen of another country. It, so if, if, you were, if, you were, uh, if you were to move to London because of work and uh, you were living there and it's like a long-term deal, you're, you're still an American citizen, so you're a citizen of a country, but you're living in London. And so you... It's a long-term deal, and so you, 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 live, you live here, but you're not of this place. Like, you know, like, one day I'm going to be leaving, but yet I'm here for now. And so you, you rent a home, or you buy a home, you buy a car, you learn the culture, you learn how to eat their food, you learn to eat curry, you, you talk with them, you learn to like soccer, or as they call it, football, or whatever their, their own customs, and their kind of deal is you get used to their deal. They, they have, I don't know if you've ever been to England, they have um, shrimp-flavored chips. That's like one of their big flavors. It's like they have like regular and they have like barbecue and they have like shrimp flavored, like prawn, prawn flavored. And it's like, wow, that's one of your flavors of chip. All right, we'll roll with this. That's just, they, they do things differently. And you, whenever you're a member, even though if you're a member, a citizen somewhere else, when you're living somewhere, you adopt the place that you're in and you have a different kind of view to it. So he's saying that we are sojourners. We are passing through. We're aliens where we live. We are, our citizenship is somewhere else. And yet the idea of that sojourner is that I, I'm not using this place. I'm not just passing through. I know I'm here for a while. And so I'm going to, I'm going to settle down here. I'm going to learn the culture. I'm going to plug in. I'm going to be a contributing member of society. And so the idea is that we as Christians, our citizenship lies somewhere else, but we are here. And while we're passing through, 
we settle down, we buy in. We don't seek like other, everybody else that comes to Myrtle Beach. You, you know, when you, when you come to Myrtle Beach, either whether you're vacationing or you're a college student, or you're retiring or you're just passing through, you just kind of view the city as like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go to the beach, I'm gonna kind of use this time while I'm here, I'm gonna use the beach, use the sun, use the deal. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're in a hotel room, like I hear, talk, hear people who own hotels, like talking about you would, the, the stories of the way people leave hotel rooms is crazy. That's because they don't own it. They have no, they're just here for a few days, they're passing through, they don't care what happens. If you're renting, you're a college student, you're renting your place, you, ha, you don't care because you're not gonna be here four years from now. You're just passing through. You have no long standing, like you're not buying any stock here. People who pass through, they're just use the area, use the golf courses, use the weather, use the beach, use the attractions, and they're just passing through, but if we are sojourners here, we know that our citizenship belongs somewhere else, but while we're here, we're going to buy into the area. We're going to serve the area. We're not going to use the area. We're going to try to build up the area for God's glory and for his kingdom. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your flesh, against your soul. That's why he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's talking about, again, that, that, sort, of, that sort of tension between the fact that I'm here and we're different from this world so that there's going to be certain things that we do and that we don't do that are going to set us apart from the people around us, Right? If you're a believer in Christ, have you run into that? There's certain things that you do that you don't do that set you apart from people around you that don't understand why you don't do that or why you, why you live your life in that, in that particular way. But yet, not only are we different, but we're here to serve and to love people around us in a sacrificial way, the way Jesus did for us in such a way that we're pouring ourselves out for him and so that when they, when they speak about us like we're evildoers because of the things that we do or don't do that they don't understand, it's difficult for them to get any further because of how we're loving and serving the people around us. That's why we're doing this. That's why we as a church are gathered here on Sunday morning. That's why we're planting this church. That's why we're building this church. It's not because we just need another building, another band, another guy talking, another person teaching from the Bible. We're here because there are 300,000 people in the Myrtle Beach area. Thousands and thousands and thousands of which do not know, do not worship Jesus Christ. They think whatever way they're going is there is fine, and whatever way you're going is fine with you, and they, as long as we just kind of agree to disagree, we'll all get along, and they do not know that he alone is the chief cornerstone. And the reason that we are here as believers in a community is so that we would live life in such a way that when they look from the outside and they see us on the inside, they would see God's glory, the excellencies, the, think about that, the word, the excellencies, the beauty, the, the, the glory, the, the magnificence of the God who created the heavens and the earth and who yet condescended to love us and care for us and sacrifice his life for us, is that they would see his excellencies displayed from, in, from the way that we live life differently outside. 
I Jesus Christ died to save them. And when he ascended on high, he left his church to be him and to reach to reach them. I can't do it. And and we are his plan. You're passionate about this, obviously. We are his plan. The church is his plan. There's no plan B. The people in your workplace and in your neighborhood that you pass by who, whose lives are, some of them think their lives are going great and some of their lives are spiraling, spiraling down out of control. There's no plan B. There's no other salvation for them apart from Jesus Christ and there's nothing else to to proclaim to them his glory and his beauty and his magnificence apart from us. It's going to be you and me or it's gonna be nothing. And I... I just... Ah... <laughs> Thanks for the baby wipe. Uh, I didn't know. Thank you. And I, I just wonder why couldn't it be us? Why couldn't it be this small band of people gathered in this school? This church with a weird name, motley crew that's here, why couldn't it be us? That God would choose to smile upon and to glorify himself through us in such a way that the people around us, that the community around us looks in and sees the excellencies of the beauty that's found in the face of Jesus Christ. Why couldn't it be us? And for that to happen, it means we're going to have to pray. It means we're going to have to we're going to have to pray hard. We're going to have to love hard. We're going to have to love each other hard. We have to love each other through difficult times. We have to love each other when you're annoying to me and when you're annoying to each other, because that time will happen. We're going to have to love our neighbors and our coworkers and the people outside of our circle hard because they're not going to be open often. 
We're gonna have to serve hard. We have to serve each other in day-to-day life. That means like when you're going through a difficult time, I'm coming in and I'm coming in to serve you and in in our efforts as a community to reach out to the people around us. We're gonna have to serve hard. We have to roll up our sleeves sometime and we're gonna have to put in some sweat equity. We have to pray hard, we have to love hard, we have to serve hard. We have to live life with mission and with gusto and with a vision. Because Jesus Christ, if he is the determining factor in your, he's created you to be a whole new genus, a whole new, almost a species of person. Your ethnicity, he has changed. Your race, he has changed. Then he is it and everything else flows from him. He's not one more thing added to it. And his vision and his plan to create for himself a people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we are serving him and loving him, and that is our determining factor then, that should be the vision and the goal that we have for our lives. And so the way that we conduct business, the way that we conduct our families, the way that we conduct our our community efforts, our our free time, our work time, our family time should all flow from the fact that he is calling for himself. He's created us to be a people and he's calling more people to be a part of that. And I just pray that this morning that uh, God would help us to renew our drive and our desire to be that people, I pray that he would use us to be that people in the Grand Strand area. And uh, I pray he would give us a spirit of humility, spirit of unity, a, a drive and a desire to see the Grand Strand area one for him. He's called us, we are stones that were cast off, he's called us and he's building dwelling place for himself. Jesus died to save the church. He rose to create the church and he lives to build his church. Jesus died to save the church. He rose to create the church and he lives to build his church. Let's honor him by giving ourselves to that. Father, I pray that you would... um, that you would make us a people who uh, um, are stirred by your heart, who are stirred by your vision, who are stirred by your call, the fact that you have created the church to display your glory and there is no plan B. So in the way that we love and pray and live, God, help us to declare you and your goodness. Need you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. 
For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.